So let's read Revelation 15, verse 5 to the end of chapter 16. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure light, or sorry, in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And then, oh sorry, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of, the, of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, sorry, uh, yes, out of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may go about, not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and, an allow, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And, the, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. All right. As usual, there's a lot in these passages. So I can't say everything, so I'm going to say as much as I can here. So let's begin here. On the morning of September 18th, 2010, a man, this guy, Mitchell Heisman, got dressed in a white suit, white shoes, everything white. And he went uh, to Memorial Church in Harvard Yard at Harvard University, and he stood on the top step. 
and there was a, a tour group there who were, it was also Yom Kippur. So there's a tour group doing a tour of the campus. He spoke to them briefly because he was once raised as a Jew, and then he proceeded to take out a revolver and shoot, his, shoot himself on the steps of the church in front of them. So he commits suicide. And just before he had left his house after eating breakfast, he sent an email to 400 of his friends with a suicide note. And the suicide note was 1,905 pages long. It had footnotes, bibliography, it was written like a thesis. He was a clever guy. And in this note, he goes on about how he was a nihilist. If you don't know what a nihilist is, a nihilist is, the, is a philosophical view that says there's no meaning in anything. And it takes it to its very extreme. There's no meaning in anything, meaning there's no good, there's no bad, there's no meaning, in which case, if there's no meaning, he says in his long treatise, I read most, I didn't read all of it, just for the record. Um, but in it, he says, you know, there's no meaning in anything, no better or worse, then there's technically no different, difference between slavery and freedom, cruelty and kindness, love and hate, war and peace, dignity, contempt, destruction, creation, life, or death. He says, so there's really no meaning. So to his credit... He understood that if, there, if you believe there's no meaning in the world, that's exactly what it means. There's no meaning. There's no reason to even wake up. Tragically, of course, he says, my suicide is going to be an experiment in nihilism. I'm going to take it to its extreme to show everybody this is what you do if you believe there's no meaning. Horrible, tragic. And yet, as you're reading it, especially if you know philosophy, because he gets into a lot of philosophy, you realize from the first words to the end, you see where he is going you know that if he continues to follow this train of thought, he's going to end up with a gun to his temple because there's no meaning, nothing. And it gets darker and darker and darker. And ultimately, he says, this is not just him, him, but he says, all of Western culture, he says, um, is suffering from the same problem because we're using science the wrong way. And he was not a Christian, not a believer at all. But he says, we're using science the wrong way. He says, what we've done is we're going in and we are trying to reduce everything to a chemical reaction. So I don't love my, my wife and my kids. It's the chemicals in me that say I have a better chance of survival if I'm a good father and have a family and a network around me. So I'm going to do that to survive. I actually do not love them. It's chemicals. The same reaction I have when I eat chocolate is the same reaction I have in my brain when I think about a loved one. And that's true. So if that's the case, he says, we're reducing everything to chemicals, in which case what's the point? And here's one of, the, one of the last things he says. This is the bankrupt philosophical disaster area the West dwells in. I see no bottom, no limits to stop the free fall into value nothingness. Implicit in nihilism is the collapse of the entire human cause. The ultimate logical conclusion of Western values is the rational self-destruction of the West. Now, you can disagree with this guy. I can say as a guy who knows a little bit about philosophy, he's not the best philosopher. Okay? He, there are flaws. He's not a great scholar. However, he does point out something, that if we continue on this path of saying there's no meaning, call yourself whatever gender you want, there's nothing, just do whatever you'd like, we are slowly getting to a spot where we're going to reduce value, and there'll be nothing valuable except for what we deem valuable. And if that's the case, we're in trouble. And because, just in the same way I could see from the first to the last how it was marching, and I was hoping I would read something that would change. I knew how it ended, but I'm hoping maybe he'll, just, maybe he'll see the error and he'll turn around. And when you look at the history of humanity, 
what you see is histories. Uh, the thousands of years that we have been on this earth doing what we do, um, millions, take your cosmological pick, you begin to see that human history is a grand suicide note. That every act of history moves us slowly but inexorably away from God. And you see it slowly. Every time we make a decision and we pull and separate ourselves from God, we're getting closer to suicide. We're just saying we're not interested. Thank you, God. And I bring this up because when we look at the bowls, remember, this is, I've called it recapitulation. So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls are telling you the exact same thing, but from different perspectives. The seals were the perspective of the suffering church. The trumpets came from the perspective of the world, what the end would look like from the world's perspective. Now you're seeing it from throne, from God, from heaven. And you'll notice the difference, right? There's not much progression, but there is. In the seals, a quarter of everything was destroyed. In the trumpets, a third. But here, there's no limit. All that's destroyed. And the sort of brutality you see right away when we read it, the questions we want to ask are things like, well, what are these frogs? And where are the bulls? Well, how is this just? We want to ask these big philosophical questions. But I think what we need to remember, and I said this in the very first sermon of the whole series, we need to understand that revelation is intended to impact your emotions as well. So rather than dissect it entirely, let's, be, let's viscerally appreciate this, this. What does it make you feel when you read this terrible stuff? And if you look at it from that perspective, because um, that's the point, right? These images were meant to make you feel something and do something, not just to think something. And if that's the case, what is it that we come away feeling from this? And I think the goal um, of the church, because remember, why, why are you getting, not getting this? Why are we being told what's going to happen to the wicked? Because remember, this book was not told to John to tell the churches to read it to the world. It says, read it to the churches. Then, of course, it becomes our message out. But why are we being given these dire images of the death of people who deserve to die, at least from the perspective of what we're reading? The reason is, is we are meant to feel something. Because until it can become our message, we must internalize it and feel something. Specifically, we have to feel pity. And I'll explain all this. Pity. We have to feel reverence and peace. And as we go through it, we're going to see that's exactly what we should come away feeling. And if we don't, well, there's implications. So what do we get? Let's jump into pity. So first, the word pity today has taken on a very condescending tone, right? To say, I pity you, somebody would get very angry and say, what, you you pity me? Oh, you know? And I think that's because they assume that the way you're saying pity is like this guy used to say it. Mr. T. Who remembers Mr. T.? Remember he was Clubber Lang in, in the Rocky movies? And in, in the movies, when he's beating up Rocky Balboa, somebody is interviewing him, and he asks the guy, the, the guy asks Mr. T, Clubber Lang, the question, do you hate Rocky Balboa? And his response is, and I quote, no, I can't say it in his voice, because he's actually has trademarked the words pity the fool. Um, so if I say it in his voice, we are liable to legal action. Just so you know, that's not, that's not a joke. So I'll just say it in my normal voice, even though I really want to make a Mr. T voice. So, no, I don't hate Balboa, but I, I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I pity the fool. <laughs> I got to do it. Anyway, I, no, I don't hate Balboa, but I pity the fool. And I will destroy any man who tries to take what I got. And if that's the way we're saying pity from a place of superiority and arrogance, like, oh, I pity the person who can't go to the Bahamas three times a year. Then it's like, man, what a jerk. That's the wrong way to pity. But the word pity is not necessarily bad. In fact, it's not bad. 
It's to feel sorrow and sadness as a result of seeing the suffering of other people. So it's good to pity. In fact, pitying is exactly the way you and I should respond when we hear about the unbelieving world dying and struggling and suffering. Not because we don't think it's just. You see, if a man cheats on his wife and then the family falls apart, I can think he's getting exactly what he deserves for his life. However, I still would pity him because there's pain. Pain to a creature and to a person that Christ not only formed in love but died for. And so pity is the right response that we should get when we read about these bowls and all this wrath coming. Um, and the reason we should pity, and well, every Christian ought to pity. If you do not pity people who are suffering wrath from God, then may I be very harsh and suggest you maybe don't know the fear that, well, Hebrews 10.31 is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember that line? Terrifying line. If you believe that to be true, then you should pity anyone who falls into the hands of God, unsaved, without Christ there to shield them. And so that's the right response. And the guy who probably, you know, the fire and brimstone preachers, uh, somebody called me one of those. I was very, I don't know if I should be proud of that or not. Um, But a fire brimstone guy, Jonathan Edwards, from the 18th century, he knew it quite well. Here's a slightly longer quote from him, from a sermon. But here's what he says about wrath. The wrath of God is like the great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil work has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. There is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. See, we need to understand the wrath of God is horrible. Terrible. Not unjust. Please understand, I'm going to talk about that. I'm not, when I say it's terrible, I'm not saying it's bad in the sense that it's unjust or it's an arbitrary God. But it is terrible. A terrible thing to fall into. That's what Scripture presents it as. And pity from you and I as believers comes from knowing how terrible that wrath is and knowing that we've avoided it by grace. If you don't know the wrath of God is absolutely terrible, but also that you have been shielded from it by the gospel, by Christ, then you are going to be like that unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, who's forgiven a great debt. And then when the other guy comes, who says, I have a small debt, well, what, I can't pay it, he doesn't, out of pity, say, I have been forgiven such a debt, I'm going to have pity on this one. Instead, he says, off to the debtor's prison you go. And this is exactly what happens when you understand, when you don't understand the depth of the wrath that you were forgiven. And so this is why preachers and churches must talk about the wrath of God. They must. If they don't, they're making terrible Christians. In fact, I'm making Christians not at all if I don't preach about the wrath of God. You have to. And 
When we get then to this passage with these terrible things that happen, first let me say something theological. The pattern is, is identical to the trumpets. The trumpets went in order. The first one affected the earth, then the sea, then the waters of the land, uh, and then the heavens, the stars and moon and so on, then the beast, and then the Euphrates River. And the bulls do the exact same order, So, which is why I think we're seeing the same thing over and over. And it is terrible what is being done. Horrible what happens to those who are sinners. And yet, what we're seeing is the exact thing that you'd expect to see if the Bible is true. So if the Bible is telling the truth and that God has created a world that the less we honor him, the more it flies out of control, then you're getting exactly what you should expect to get, which is that the natural consequences, which are when I rape and pillage the land, it's going to eventually fall apart on me ecologically. When I take advantage of people and use betrayal in my relationships, those are going to fall apart. When I'm corrupt in my negotiations, don't expect uh, the, the system to not be corrupt. So we're getting the natural consequences. But there's also a divine consequence, this eternal hopelessness, this separation from God that comes. And you and I as Christians, when we read it, it ought to fill us with horror and urgency and say, my goodness, let's save as many as we can from that. Because many people in this room have family and friends and children who are not walking with God. And it's very easy to say, oh, it's the doctrine of elections, the problem. The pastor's not preaching it right. There's no compassion. Stop it. You are being urged with all of these images to go out and share the gospel. Don't start blaming theology or John Calvin or Carl. Let's get out there. We should be filled with urgency. So when we're running Christianity Explored, I should be flooded with people wanting to get involved to share the gospel with non-believers. And if that's not the case, then you should be at least coming and saying, how do I do this in my workplace? There should be an urgency. Because I assure you, if you had cancer and you knew you had X amount of years, days to live, there would be a fire under you, wouldn't there? But the fact that we don't have a fire under us indicates we don't see the urgency. And I'm not blaming anybody in particular here because we're all to blame for this uh, to an extent. But there is an urgency and if that, we should, that is driven from wrath that finds its expression in pity from us. So, pity. We should be moved to pity when we read this. Next thing is reverence. Um, so the question we have to start with here is, why does God want to judge the world, right? Why are these bulls even coming? And let's start again with a weird place, the Iliad by Homer. Iliad is this book, and although the book chronicles the invasion of Troy, which is a city, well, it was a city, on the Turkish coast, um, we found it there, it's still there. Uh, it was invaded by the Greeks. And it was, the whole book is about this war and how the Greeks eventually destroy Troy and sack it, crush it. Now, although that is the story, the book opens with this line, the very first words, Achilles' wrath to Greece, the direful spring of woes unnumbered. Now, why does the book, a book about a war between two nations, start with the talk about one of its warriors, the Greek warrior Achilles, and his wrath? It's because Homer was not a dumb classical writer. He understood that although the story is about this war, the currents that move the story along in the plot are the wrath and vengeance of Achilles. That as Achilles goes, so does the war entirely. In fact, Achilles in this is presented, and you'll see why this is relevant in a minute. He's presented as vengeful, reactionary. The great unforgivable sin to Achilles is to offend his honor. Right? You offend his honor, you're dead. And he's incredibly capable. And he was apparently brilliantly good-looking. That's why Brad Pitt plays him in one of the movies. You know, and he's this, this larger-than-life character. 
but he has absolute, he's actually incapable of reason. That's one of Homer's points. Achilles is incapable of being rational. He is a man driven entirely by his passions, very Samson-like, entirely by his passions. And you see this in the story because on two occasions, two of his best friends come to try to reason with him, Odysseus and Ajax, or Ajax if you want to be Greek. They come and speak to him, but he's not moved by rationality. He's like, forget it, I'm still going to kill everybody. Right? That doesn't matter. The two times he is moved is when people come to him crying because he's a man who you can't sway him with logic. You have to appeal to his emotions because he's an emotional, sensual creature. This is how Samson works as well. We'll preach Samson in a year or so. And so this is the way he... And now, the reason I bring this up is the only way to appease the wrath of Achilles in the book of the Iliad is to appeal to his emotions, to satisfy his emotions. And this is the view most people have of the God of the Bible that he is this vengeful, arbitrary jerk of a god who's like a two-year-old or a toddler. And he, in fact, I read this week, somebody refers to him as the, the first cancel, he created cancel culture because Adam and Eve made a mistake and he canceled them. Um, modern critics. And this is the view people have. They're just like Achilles. That's all he is. And we do that because we do not understand sin. And, we do not, and because we don't, we think he is fickle and his punishments are exceeding the crime that a punishment is too great for the crime. But here's the fault, the fault that is in the world and in the church as well. People generally say things like this. You know, humanity, yeah, it's, 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 it's broken, but people are generally good. No. The moment you say that, you, should, you reveal you have not taken a systematic theology class with Carl. The Bible's quite clear. We are not generally good. That's the problem. There's, that's the issue. We're not generally good. And because we don't understand that, We'll all, if we think there's good in us to an extent, and I'm talking, I'm going to sound pretty harsh here, we'll always think, come on, he didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve that. It's because we don't understand the depth of the offense of sin. We think it's just a big deal. You know, somebody steps on my toe. Oh, big deal. I'm not going to kill them for it. And we think this is all that God is. He's just this fickle kind of thing. But let's talk about humanity for a second. Now, let me use another example from... I guess sort of mythology, but it's more comic book mythology. Um, in the comic book series of a guy named Thor, Thor was this Greek, myth, uh, Greek or sorry, Norse god of thunder, son of Odin. Now, this guy doesn't, his enemy, this enemy doesn't show up in, in real mythology, only in the comic books. But in the comic books, he's got this enemy named Gore, the God Butcher, who's actually in the movie that has just been released, I believe. And in this He's, I mean, it's pretty obvious what he, his life's job, his, his title is, right? He's the God Butcher. Apparently he goes out and he kills, he wants to kill all the Norse gods. And the reason he wants to kill them is because when he was younger, he had a family. And they were sick and they were dying and the gods did nothing to help them. So he decided if there are gods, then they're just jerks because they wouldn't help when my family was dying. And if there's no gods, then to heck with them. But when he figures and realizes there are gods, he says, it's my job to kill them. Now, think about what he's doing, because he, he is humanity incarnate. Humanity, well, what, God, what Gore is doing is this. Hey, gods, I know what you should be doing, saving my sick daughter. If you do not do my will and save my daughter, then I have no use for you, and I'll do everything I can to wipe you off the face of the earth. The problem is, he wants to be God. He wants the gods to do his will. And humanity says the Bible is exactly the same. You and I want God to do our will. 
And when he doesn't do it, we say, well, I have no need for him. There's no need. We were God butchers long before Gore. Long before. Long before Nietzsche suggested it in the 19th century, too. We have been trying to wipe God out of our lives because we want to be God. And this is the root of the problem that all of, uh, that all of Scripture rotates on. That we are slowly killing ourselves because we refuse the antidote. We won't have it. We just won't have it. Now, human sin doesn't just lead to anger with God, but it, it, just, it's, it spreads out with this corruption into the world. All the sex trafficking, the corruption, betrayal, everything we see in the world, says the Bible, comes from this first problem of moving away from God. And as a result, we deserve what we get. And uh, G.K. Beale, a New Testament scholar, says this about humanity. The mark of the beast on their bodies has penetrated their souls, instilling in them the hostility towards God and his holiness, which is characteristic of the beast himself. And so what we're seeing is that the wrath of God is not arbitrary. It's not even emotional primarily. It's him coming and saying, this is justice. You wanted the gods to be dead, and the gods are dead to you now. And so Leon Morris, another New Testament scholar, says this about God's wrath. Wrath is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil, arising out of God's very nature, a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. And so, we see this in the text, because where does God, the angels, and the bulls come from? They come out of the temple, or the, ta the tabernacle of, it says testimony or witness in this version, testimony, could be witness as well. And that is important. Do you, who, does anybody know what the, test, the tabernacle of testimony is? It's very rarely referred to. It's only in Exodus, like a couple times. And the tabernacle of testimony is the Holy of Holies. And it's referred to as the tabernacle of testimony only when, um, when Moses is speaking about the ark having the tablets of the Ten Commandments in them. Because the Ten Commandments is God's witness to the world. So, when you see judgment coming out of this place where the moral law of God was held, you're being shown that you have violated the moral law and the moral law has consequences and that's where the punishment is coming from. It is justice, not anger, not wrath in the sense that, like Achilles' wrath, you've besmirched my honor so you have to die. If you think that of God, you haven't understood the Bible's understanding of wrath. Wrath is God's love burning hot, says Martin Luther. And this is what is happening here, is that the moral law has been violated and has to be, has to be righted. And so, why are we told about this at all? Because we are told, as we read these things, we're not just to see pity, but we're also to be revering God. You come away from this as a Christian, and you ought to be in awe of him for many reasons. One is his raw power. If you're not in awe of God's raw power, it's because you have never experienced it or you don't know it. I remember the first time I was ever in the ocean, I think I was about 10, in Portugal. My parents went there, showed us the old country. And um, I'm in the ocean, and I'm in, about up to my waist at the time. And I was warned about the undertow, you know, dragging you out to sea. And I'm in there, and I could swim, but I'm a 10-year-old, right? And as the waves go out, I'm having fun. But as it starts coming back, I wasn't dragged out. But I, I felt I had to put all of my weight just to keep from being dragged. And I remember that moment still so clearly that I realized at that point I ought to revere and have a certain degree of respect for the ocean. It is greater than I am. And if I don't treat it accordingly, I am at risk, right? I could just defy it and say, ha ha, I'm man, I trample on the oceans. 
but I'd be dead. Um, so there's a certain amount of reverence that ought to come when you see the power of God. And this infinite power of God is not just just, but it's incredibly powerful. And you know where it's most, I think, most incredibly revealed here is in the word Armageddon. And I have to mention this because somebody will say, where's Armageddon? When's it happening? When's this? What's going on? Let's be, let me be honest. Armageddon is not a real place necessarily because Armageddon is the Hebrew word har Har-Megiddo, which means the Mount of Megiddo. There's no mountain called Megiddo in Israel. Nobody, everybody knows this. Megiddo was a town that was at the foot of the Mount Carmel range. And the path that led through the mountains came out through and past Megiddo and out into the Jezreel Valley. So some people say, ah, it must be that valley. Okay, so if that's the valley, then you have to ask her why he's saying it's on the mountain not in the valley, because they have words for that. So we don't know what he's getting at here. And people say, well, look at the history of Megiddo. Well, listen, there's a lot of things that happen in the Jezreel Valley in the history of Israel, good and bad. So we can't really say we know where it's going to be. I don't think it's even important. Let me be honest, I don't think it's important. I think if people want to get really caught on the name Armageddon, then maybe you're focusing on the tree and missing the forest. Because what should really catch your attention here is this. All the nations gather on the last days to fight against God, but nowhere in the, in the Revelation does it speak about a battle. It doesn't talk about it. In fact, it says they all gather to fight, and then Christ shows up, and the war's over. There's no war. There's never a battle, which is because there is no opposition to Christ. Zero. And that ought to be capturing us. This reverence of saying all the nations get together to fight, and they don't even get a chance to lift a finger against him at the end. And you're going to notice this, we'll cover it more in the coming chapters, because they mentioned this a little. But that is what we ought to grab, that Jesus scatters opposition simply by showing up. And so, let me just close a second point here. The powerful acts of God may cause us to bow our heads, but what causes us to bend our knee is the cross. Because what the Bible says about the wrath of God is that on the cross, all of human sin for the history of humanity... Every sin, I'm talking every lie, cheat, every nickel stolen. When Carl stole a gumball from, a, 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 from a, a convenience store when I was a kid and my mom found out and made me go back and give him the spit out, chew the gum and say I'm sorry. Every single sin in human history from the min, from minuscule to the most perverse and severe was curled up and condensed, poured into a cup and Christ experienced the wrath that every single sin of humanity ever deserved in the instant on the cross, which is why he cries, why have you forsaken me? And because he does that willingly for our sake, man, you and I ought to revere him. So we hear about the wrath of God, we should revere him because he's so powerful and so just, but also because he took it upon himself for me. That ought to be what drives us to our knees every single time. Wrath should move us to pity and to reverence. But lastly and bestly, bestly? It's not a word. Um, to peace. So let's go there. One of the interesting features of this passage, passage is there's three different occasions where there's an interruption, where somebody else speaks. It's no longer just the talk of what happened with these bowls being poured out, but somebody interjects. It's like a commentary. The angels show up, Christ shows up, um, the throne shows up and speaks. Oh, not the throne, sorry, the altar. And, um, and from the throne as well, sorry, throne and altar. And in these instances... When we look at those interruptions to the story, pay attention to them. Because why are they coming? They're coming to tell you 
that there is hope amidst as dire as it is. Because again, remember we've said this all through the series. When things are always miserable, it's like God pops in these moments to say, take heart, I've sealed 144,000. Take heart, there's witnesses. Take heart, I have overcome the world, and so on. And here, there's three times. The first time he jumps in is in chapter five, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. And this is the angels. Remember I mentioned earlier the angels don't sing. They say it's a song, but then they say something. So they say this hymn. And in it, they come and they say, it's just. God, you are just for everything you're doing. Why does that come? It's to remind you amidst all of the horror you say, that God is saying, I know it looks harsh, but it is just. How is it just? First, it's not arbitrary or undeserved. Okay? One, that's the first thing. Second thing, they had time to repent, like a lot of time to repent. In fact, at very least, they've had 2,000 years to repent, which is pretty long. So they've had time to repent. You'll notice all through this passage again, they simply won't repent. The third thing is, the punishment is always proportionate to the crime. The lex taliona, if you know this, this term in, in Latin. This is the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth sort of idea. Do you notice this, the, almost the poetic justice of it? They have spilled blood and lived off of destroying people, so now they have to drink the blood. Is that gruesome? If it's taken literally, of course it's gruesome. Is it just? I don't know. Tell me if you've ever had a child beaten, raped, or murdered, if it's just. See, there's justice in it, and we're reminded of it because we're prone to saying, how could God do this? So we're reminded first, and we can have peace in it because we know God is just, and even if we don't understand it, he is just. Second time he jumps in is verse 15. This is Christ himself. He says, stay alert because I'm coming like a thief in the night. Two things are important here. One, remain vigilant. He's encouraging you. Keep going. Don't worry. But the best part is, it's so subtle. He says, I am coming like a thief in the night. That means he is coming. He's coming. He's not not going to show up. He's coming. And in the midst of all of this mess, you need to know that you're assured of the fact that Christ is going to come and do what he says and reclaim those who are his. So he's encouraging us again. And the last time is in chapter 16, verse 17. This throne, a voice from the throne speaks and says, it is done. Now, of course, that probably reminds you, if you're a Christian anyway, of John 19. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. But there's a different, interesting thing here. The words are different. On the cross in John, same writer, presumably, John the Apostle, says it is finished. And that word is the Greek word telos, which I've mentioned if you go back to the second sermon of the series. Um, I go through what that means. And it means the destiny of a thing. You know, an acorn's telos is to be an oak tree. And Christ on the cross says, I have become my oak tree. On the cross, I've accomplished what I was destined to do, die for humanity. But when he's speaking here about the end, of the, the end of all things, he says it is done. It's a different word completely. It's um, yenomei, uh, yenomei, yenomei, sorry. Um, and it means literally it is to be, uh, has taken place. It has become. That which was, was not is now. And the idea in there is the same one that Jesus actually uses when he says in Gethsemane, your will be done, not mine. So what we're seeing is at the end of all things, God is saying... Everything has come to completion. It's been done. Not the destiny, but everything I've wanted to do is done, including the time of grace. There is justice. From now on, there's no more opportunity to repent. It is done. And that sounds harsh if you're a non-believer, but if you're a Christian, you're saying, finally, I can relax. Finally, the war is over. The struggle is over. Finally, the suffering can come to an end. I was talking to my kids. I read to them 
in theory, every night if I can. And we're, I think it was yesterday, we're reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress with my two littlest ones. And we started talking about what it's going to be like. You know, when you get to this new heaven and new earth, and they're like, Dad, when we get there, the first thing we do, let's go to the forest and find a bear to be our pet. That's, that's what Simon wants, okay? Simon wants a bear to be his pet. Because uh, he thinks, because I told him, you know, there's, the suffering is gone, so we're just dreaming about what it's going to be like. And this is exactly the sort of thing I want my kids to be thinking about, because that's what fuels them. What's it going to be like? I'm not going to ask them to write a thesis about this. I don't know if we're going to have bears as pets in the, in the new earth. I don't know. But this is the hope we have, that it is done, that it's finished. He's coming and in the midst of this horrible stuff, we see this. And the lesson then for us is to, look, to let Christ interrupt us. Let revelation interrupt you. Let it come in and with its images challenge you. Let me, I'm happy to challenge you as you can tell. Um, let it challenge you. Let, force it to sharpen your theology. Even if you come to different, that's okay. Let it interrupt you. Let it push into your life and say, this is what the world looks like. This is what I say it looks like. Let those images override your imagination. Again, the first sermon, I mentioned that in more detail. And don't be misled by the pictures of this world. We see this all the time. If you listen to the world, then we would only be talking about sexual identity, identity politics, um, uh, racial issues, marital issues, indigenous issues. If we do that as a church and start to simply pander to what the, other, what the world says we should be talking about, we have failed. We preach scripture clearly, and those topics will come up as they come up. Nobody tells us how to preach or what to study. Scripture does. God does. And in that way, the only way to keep that way is when people say, Carl, you really should do a sermon on gender identity. I say, no, I don't say it quite as bad. I don't go like, say, like, like Jesus did to Peter. Get away from me, Satan. You know, I don't do that. But I do say, no, thank you. I'm not taking requests. That's not the point. The point is to preach Christ and him crucified solely. And the only way to do that is to fix our eyes on the images of God and let them dominate. The images that we see in Scripture tell us what we do as a church, not the world. Never. As best we can. That doesn't mean we ignore it. It doesn't mean we insulate it. If you know me and you've been here for a while, you know I'm not running from the world's problems by any stretch. But we don't determine what we do based on it. The world says the most important thing you should be doing is worrying about gender issues. No, it's not. Your sin is the biggest problem we should be dealing with, not gender issues, because all of that is smoke and mirrors. And so we focus on that as best we can. If you're a skeptic, consider this your, your interruption. Consider I and this sermon, God coming to you now as an interruption to your life, saying your story is going one way and God is trying to write you into his story. Will you see it? Will you now look and see that right now you're, solely you're the sole inheritor of a great big cup of wrath? That's what the Bible says. But there is a shield from that wrath, and it's Christ and him alone. So I encourage, if you're not a Christian, take up that shield. If you are a Christian, celebrate in this pity, reverence, and peace that we have. And with that, let's pray.